My name is Yusuf Hassan, and you're listening to Africa Aware, a podcast from the Chatham House Africa Programme. This week's episode, we will be exploring the challenges facing the Sahel region, which is a key focus for the Africa Programme as part of our Peace and Security thematic research area. The region faces numerous complex and interconnected challenges, from inequality and extreme poverty, to radicalization, food scarcity, and environmental degradation. As a program, we strive to promote informed policy responses to the aforementioned challenges. In this episode, I will be speaking with two experts, both of whom with broad experience in the region. Firstly, Dr. Jita Honwana Welch, who will provide a guide to the historical and current challenges those in the region face. Followed by that, I'll be interviewing Dr. Marc-Antoine Peru de Monclo on his new Africa program research paper, which explores why the current responses to insecurity and jihadism in the Sahel need to be rethought. Dr. Jita Honwana Welch is an associate fellow at the Africa program with over 20 years experience in international development. Between 2011 and 2013, she was the director of the United Nations Development Program, UNDP, Regional Service Center for West and Central Africa, based in Dakar, Senegal. Prior to this, she served as a UNDP country director in Angola and director of the UNDP Democratic Governance Group in New York. Dr. Jita has extensive knowledge and hands-on experience in restoring justice systems in post-conflict situations, both in her native Mozambique and in East Timor, where she served as Minister of Justice during the UN-led transition. Welcome, Jita, to Africa, where it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. So, Jita, as an expert who has worked in the region, what would you define as the key historical development challenges which are yet to be addressed effectively? As we know, the Sahel is a vast and complex region that forms a dividing line between sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East. It is undergoing complex, multifaceted humanitarian and security crisis. In uh, 2012, and for the third time in 10 years, in fact, the Sahel region was hit by a major drought which led to a humanitarian crisis that has further weakened vulnerable communities in many Sahel countries. In 2013, to save the lives of the 24 million affected, the UN Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, OCHA, and other development partners devised the three-year regional plan to deliver life-saving assistance to enhance resilience and to shape the response to urgent appeals in nine countries. And those countries are Burkina Faso, Cameroon, Chad, Mali, Mauritania, Niger, Nigeria, Senegal, and the Gambia. But it was also as of 2012 that the current security crisis resulting from violent religious extremist activities in the region erupted. Of course, this aggravated exponentially the humanitarian situation in different parts of the Sahel, where populations were already victims of extreme poverty, the harsh effects of climate change, desertification, and the subsequent food insecurity. The Sahel security crisis is associated to the fall of the Libyan regime in 2011, 
and the return of hundreds of combatants from that country to Mali and Niger, mostly, contributing significantly to the destabilization of the region. This combination of circumstances exacerbated the problem of the emergence of armed religious extremist groups, such as Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, the Islamic State of the Great Sahara, and others. So to the question of the key development challenges to be addressed, in the Sahel, those are the product of both local and global dynamics. A heavy colonial legacy, weak state power in many cases, structural factors of fragility in governance, large pockets of pervasive extreme poverty, the effects of climate change, political instability, pre-existing community tensions around land tenure and resources, a deteriorating security situation spreading across porous borders, a history of arms, drugs, and human trafficking. So to mention perhaps the key ones. The Central Sahel area, and in particular, what is called the Liptako-Gurma region, which includes Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger, is considered the epicenter of the security crisis, security stroke humanitarian crisis now. Burkina Faso is currently considered the most problematic country in the humanitarian crisis spreading in the region. According to the UN World Food Programme, for example, in its report in 2019, this is the situation. So Burkina Faso became the most problematic country where the crisis is actually the deepest. Also, the report of the special representative of the Secretary General for West Africa and the Sahel to the Security Council in July of 2019 indicates that a total of 5.1 million Burkinabes, Nigerians, and Malians are in need of desperate humanitarian assistance. With the COVID-19 crisis, the situation tends to uh, worsen rather than to get better. While internal displacement is on the rise in the region, substantial numbers of refugees have now fled to neighboring countries, and according to a report by the UN High Commissioner for Refugees of June of 2020, the situation was then likely to spill over the coastal countries of Benin, Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana, and Togo. This is actually happening as we speak. The European Union and um, others have early on issued strategies for the Sahel. In fact, The EU was the first one to issue an integrated strategy for the Sahel. This one explicitly recognized that the security and development in the Sahel cannot be separated and that helping these countries achieve security is integral to enabling their economies and to reduce poverty in the region. So the Sahel crisis is today exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic, which is already affecting areas hosting refugees and internally displaced populations in the region. Despite a low number of tests and cases detected so far in the Sahel region, 
the steady increase of the infection rates elsewhere in the neighboring countries and, and elsewhere in Africa, in fact, indicates a forthcoming emergency for which national health systems in the Sahel region do not certainly have the capacity. The immediate socioeconomic impact of COVID will have longer term consequences for food security, access to basic social services, livelihoods throughout the region. This will certainly impact the poor, the refugees, displaced populations, among those, the women, jeopardizing the achievement of the sustainable development goals and, in fact, durable solutions for the crisis. Thank you so much for that. And that is, as you've mentioned, that in the crisis that the Sahel faces, whether it be humanitarian, environmental, security, they all seem to be rooted in extreme poverty and inequality. And the question that I have is, what can be done to address this inequality that really impacts on development outcomes? To varying degrees, the states of the Sahel occupy, in fact, the lower end of international rankings of human development. 40% of the population of the Sahel lives below the poverty line. The Sahel states are also among those with the highest employment rates in the agricultural sector. With Chad, for example, at the highest level with 87% of its population in agriculture. A large percentage of the workforce is employed in the informal sector, which leaves these workers and their families very vulnerable to crisis. Certainly those employed in agriculture, for example, with the environmental crisis, climate crisis, are in a dire situation. So tens of millions of pastoral farmers and nomads in the Sahel are really badly affected. So uh, to the question, what can be done? What should be done? Well, uh, in my view, it is paramount that all response efforts to this crisis focus on reducing inequality by strengthening governance and access to basic social services, improving crisis response coordination at regional, also at international levels, and ensuring greater inclusion and resilience of communities and people. As discussed in many recent reports by the UN, by the EU, by other stakeholders, inequality is deep-seated and permeates all aspects of life in the Sahel, contributing to a sense of injustice among its peoples, particularly youth, I should say. And this coupled with the lack of access to education and health, as well as the unemployment, makes the youth of the Sahel an easy target for radicalization and recruitment by extremist groups. There have been calls by the UN, by regional and international organizations for the governments of the Sahel and the international community to respond to these urgent problems in a coordinated manner, making the fight against inequality, a top priority of the response, including through the most efficient policy options. If well-crafted, these responses, and if they engage all stakeholders, they could in fact go beyond the current 
narrow focus of security and address the problem from a more holistic viewpoint, especially enhancing the nexus between security and development. For example, the fiscal and tax policy choices of the governments of the Sahel leave them with insufficient resources to finance public services for all and reduce income inequality. This is a question of policy options. In 2016, government revenues represented only 22% of the GDP, for example, in Senegal, and only 14.4% in Niger. At the same time, countries tend to apply, for example, tax incentives to attract investors. And these tax incentives are usually far too generous. For example, investors in the extractive industries are formidable negotiators for the governments of the Sahel. Niger, for example, is the world's fourth largest producer of uranium, which is its largest export product. And it receives only 4% to 6% of its budget revenues from that sector. There are several intervention frameworks and strategies in the Sahel, including the G5 Sahel Development and Security Strategy. This is an initiative among five of uh, the Sahel countries. It is vital that these initiatives are made complementary to each other so that a coherent and strong intervention around the Sahel crisis can begin to address the many challenges more efficiently and more sustainably. A perfect example as to how a lot of these factors intersect in the sense that the environmental degradation, the difficulties that we are seeing from a climate change perspective feed into the the wider inequality, feed into the security sector difficulties that many of these countries are facing. And of course, that leads to further humanitarian difficulty for the population themselves. Thank you so much, Jita, for your insights and your perspective on these difficult challenges. It's been a pleasure speaking to you, and I'm sure our audience will deeply appreciate your time. Thank you. Now, Dr. Marc-Antoine Peroud-Demonclo, who is a political scientist and senior researcher at the French National Research Institute for International Development. He taught as a professor at the French Institute of Geopolitics and was a fellow at Chatham House from 2013 to 2017 and at the Peace Research Institute in Oslo from 2015 to 2020. He's a specialist on armed conflicts and humanitarian aid in sub-Saharan Africa and lived for several years in Nigeria, South Africa and Kenya. Across his career, he has published over 75 articles and books across his area of expertise. Marc-Antoine, welcome to Africa Aware. It's a pleasure to host you. Thank you, Yusuf. So Marc-Antoine is the author of the Africa Programme's most recent paper, available on our website, of course. The question that immediately comes to mind, Marc-Antoine, is what problem is your paper trying to address? Well, it's showing that the main cause of the resilience of jetty groups on various insurgent groups in this part of the world is due to failing states. And jihadism is only the symptom of a deep crisis of the state in the cell with failing armies, uh, weak states and no justice, no police on the ground. And this is the main issue that the paper is dealing with. 
especially in two countries, one which is emblematic of the numerous problems in this area, which is Mali, um, where the French army intervened in 2013, and another one which fares better and uh, cope better with the, with the challenge, the current challenge, which is the Republic of Niger, where there are currently some elections, by the way. That's a perfect place to start then. And actually, having read the paper, which is excellent, of course, a theme woven throughout it is the oversimplification of the situation is merely a manifestation of global jihad, of a coordinated global jihad. And that actually being a disguise or a cloak of sorts that governments use. Are you able to speak towards that? Yes, it is. It's, it's a convenient, it's common wisdom that the main problem in the area is global jihadism. And this current narrative is uh, pushed both by the international community to justify uh, military presence, and that's of course France first, and also by African states, African governments to get some international support to fight against terrorism. So they also overplay the issue of a global jihad dismissing the fact that repression or corruption within their armies is also part of the problem. It's not only part of the solution, but also part of the, of the problem. But of course, it's not easy for Paris, uh, which has sent over 5,000 troops in the South, to blame officially its allies for being also responsible for the situation on ground. So uh, it's much more convenient to point to links with Daesh or uh, Al-Qaeda to explain the resilience of jihadi groups instead of showing that arms smuggling, arms trafficking are also part of the today of, of, the, of the daily business of some of the armies in the region. But again, I mean, the uh, narrative on global terrorism sounds quite well, including to get some support from the European Union. European partners of France in the South are both afraid of the uh, jihadi threat and also illegal immigration. And these two key points are a good trigger for uh, justifying uh, the use of military force and intervening and uh, interfering into the regulation of local conflicts that actually have not much to do with terrorism as such. It has to do with cattle, access to water points, uh, access to areas where the, the cattle can pass, you know, uh, corridors to transhume the cattle. And I mean, it's very difficult in all this accumulation of conflicts which are sometimes also a bit ethnic or communal, to extract what is really terrorist in, in this. I mean, many atrocities are perpetrated, not only by the insurgents, whatever the name you give them, but also by the national armies. And we should keep that in mind because these human rights violations actually legitimate jihadi groups and contribute to uh, prolong the conflict, the hostility. So we should really keep in mind that national armies on ground are part of the problem and not only of the solution. I think one of the points that really struck me reading the paper was how you examined the semantics that are used in reference to the conflict and the impact of their use. For example, the designation of the militants as terrorists versus them being insurgents and how that limits policy options. Could you speak to that? Yes, qualifying these groups as being terrorists instead of insurgent groups has a lot of policy implication. Counterinsurgency is different from counterterrorism. Well, in Europe, counterterrorism is a police affair, by the way, much more than a military one. Uh, so there's a discrepancy here in the narratives, you know. 
when you fight against terrorist groups, you don't negotiate with them. And that's always been the position of the Elysee in France. Uh, you don't negotiate with terrorist groups. Whereas when you are into counterinsurgency, you use the carrots and the baton. You uh, try to win the hearts and minds of the people. And yes, sometimes you can negotiate. You can negotiate demobilization, for instance. But in the case of terrorism, which is framed as being a problem of radical Islam, then you are talking about deradicalization. And the implication is completely different. You don't negotiate deradicalization. You negotiate demobilization. You negotiate a ceasefire with an uncertain group. So the qualification of these groups as being terrorist has a lot of consequences also on the prolongation of the hostilities. So instead of negotiating, instead of demobilizing and trying to demobilize, you try to deradicalize as if the main issue was a religious issue, the so-called radicalization of Islam. I have personally interviewed in two of the G5 countries, that is the Republic of Niger and Chad, some Boko Haram members. And out of some 60 members I've interviewed, uh, only one joined for religious reasons. The others joined for many other reasons. For instance, some of them wanted to run away from uh, the uh, abuses of, of the army, you know, uh, arbitrary arrest, uh, torture in jail. Then uh, when you are young, uh, a male and a Muslim uh, in the region of Difa, for instance, or on, in Lake Chad, you are the, the usual suspect. And some of them join Boko Haram for this very reason. Some others would join the group, not because they adhere to the ideology or to the doctrine. There is nothing to do with the so-called radicalization of Islam. They would join the group and fight with it, whether because the economic sanctions of the anti-terrorist coalition pushed them into the arms of insurgents to loot, to, to get some food, you know, basically, or also for revenge. I mean, when, when your sister has been raped by a policeman or your brother has been uh, extrajudicially killed by the military uh, just because he was a suspect and he was not a Boko Haram member, then some people join these groups for these very reasons. And this, of course, contributes to legitimize and to uh, prolong uh, the, the, the conflict. So this is a core issue that needs to be said. So completely winning hearts and minds, I think, is a perfect frame as to the most effective methods. Following on from a point you just made about the dysfunctionalities within the security sector across the region in, in many of these countries, how do you believe that these weaknesses and these dysfunctionalities contribute to the situation itself, as you've mentioned? For two reasons. Number one, the national armies do not protect civilians. So civilians have to make a deal with so-called jihadi groups or whatever insurgent groups there is in their area to continue cultivating, to be able to transport their goods, to you know, just continue living, just because they are not protected by the national armies. And actively, when national armies or the police or the security forces in general do perpetuate extrajudicial killings, um, again, it pushes some youth into the arms of insurgents for fear of being killed by the army. So you see, these are the two main ways whereby the dysfunctions of national armies can contribute to prolong the conflicts, whether because they don't protect properly the civilians, so civilians have to make a deal with jihadi groups, or because they actively participate to the conflict by extrajudicially killing civilians, which of course push survivors into the arms of insurgents. And of course, the insurgents, those who claim to fight in the name of Allah, in the name of the Quran, will use these extrajudicial killings of good Muslims or martyrs, as they would call them, as a good excuse to justify they are fighting against 
occupying troops that are seen as being uh, working for the imperialist powers, um, the West, you know, and working for Christians and working for an agenda which is very far from the current challenge of people on the ground. I mean, what is also striking is the way the abyssal gap between the threats, how they are perceived by locals and how they are perceived in, in capital cities and, and also in, in maybe in London or in Paris, you know. For instance, the word terrorism does not exist in local language. In Canary, um, they would translate it as being bad boys and they refer to terrorism as being the anti-terrorist unit in local language, you know. And it shows the discrepancy, the gap between local threats And people often feel more threatened by the lack of rain or the lack of basic services, um, health problems, cattle rustling, which is a big issue in this area of the world, uh, much more than so-called terrorist groups. So you see, this gap says also uh, something on why national armies don't have local support, you see. So it, it also contributes to the problems that um, these countries are facing. Completely, and, and there being a sense of anger because the governments in this case are not fulfilling their social contract to their citizens, which of course leads to more resentment. And like you said, can lead to individuals being recruited into these heinous groups. And actually, a point that I want to come back to that you mentioned, there was the human rights implications of this and how these groups, and actually on occasion, the, the, the militaries themselves, further entrench populations because of a lack of fulfillment of the social contract that I just mentioned. Like, could you speak to that? Yes, and I would say that the demand for justice is very important. People are demanding justice. So whenever there is a massacre perpetrated by um, militias or by uh, security forces, they demand justice and they don't get it. So it's extremely frustrating because very often the war on terror is also implying stigmatization of certain groups like the Canary around Lake Chad or the Fulani, the Fulfude, the, the, the Pill, as we say in French, or in Wolof. Uh, these groups are stigmatized as being potentially terrorist. They are designated as such and being victimized and stigmatized as being a kind of fifth column of jihadists then they, of course, react and mistrust the state, which does not protect them, which does not answer their call for justice for those who perpetrate massacres of civilians. And you can imagine how frustrating it is for Fulani people living in northern Burkina Faso or in, in central Mali uh, or even in Niger. At least Niger, because impunity is, is also a key issue, you know, those who perpetrate the massacres and I'm not talking only about the insurgents, but also about the security forces, they are not sanctioned for what they are doing. And yes, it is, it is a big issue. At least the Republic of Niger did set up a human rights commission to investigate a massacre perpetrated by the Niger army a year ago. They also set up a, a commission to investigate arms trafficking and within the army and some deals with import of arms that were never actually uh, realized. And uh, at least Niger has, has reacted to that. But in Mali, no. The situation in Mali is, is terrible because uh, when the French intervened uh, at the beginning of 2013, uh, Putschists were in power. There was a mutiny in the army. They made a coup and toppled the elect president. 
And then the French army and the French government helped organize with the international committee some elections in July 2013. Unfortunately, last year, the um, Malian military did another coup. Uh, they toppled the elect president. And even if there were electoral fraud, no doubt about it, at least he was elected. So they took power again. And you can see the sense of impunity. How do you expect a military government in power in Bamako to sanction, to blame um, officers that uh, divert public funds uh, or soldiers who extrajudicially kill a, a poor peasant somewhere in central Mali? No, you cannot expect much in this regard in, in Mali as long as the military are in power. Niger is in this regard much more, uh, we have a much more positive views of what's going on in, in Niger. At least there are some commission investigating these issues. And hopefully they would be able at the end to try someone, you know, for what has been going on in Niger. Uh, in Mali, unfortunately, this is not the case. And so the frustration, the demand for justice is still very high on the agenda. And of course, it takes us far away from the current narrative on the only problem in this area is jihadism, the radicalization of Islam. I'm talking about the demand for justice, the lack of justice, the frustration of the people, the uh, uh, running of cattle and how to fight effectively against cattle wrestling. This is a police affair, basically. And one of the key problems in this area of the world is the incapacity of the state to regulate properly conflicts without resorting to force. This is one of the issues of the social contract, and it will take time before Sahel can cope with such solid challenge. Once again, I'm in complete agreement with you there. I feel that, especially in your comments around the social contract and states in which you have military rulers who are the individuals that the population blame for atrocities or, or the difficulties that they experience, now ruling over said population and expecting them to, to invest in them and to, and to believe in them. And of course, that's not how you win hearts and minds. And actually, to follow on from a point that you just made using two countries as examples, George Santayana famously said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Mm. And in the paper, you deep dive into the history of the two countries that you just mentioned, Niger and Mali, to provide context to readers as to the background of these modern day challenges. Why did you feel it was important to, to go into the history in your paper? Lessons have not been learned. In the case of Mali, you cannot understand the uh, dysfunction of the Malian army and, and the way it behaves if you don't keep in mind decades of military repression in northern Mali. And without this repression, without the frustration of the Tuaregs who declared independence in 2012, actually the GID groups could not be based there, you know. But they have a common enemy, which is Bamako and the Malian army. And to understand why people are rejecting the Malian army in northern Mali, why they don't trust the security forces, you have to keep in mind that since the first Tuareg rebellion, after the independence of Mali in 1960, so the first Tuareg rebellion was in 1963, there has been ongoing insurgencies, repression, and again, also this stigmatization of some people. So in the 1990s, the stigmatization would have to do with the way you are dressed. If you, if you wear a turban, then you are seen as a Tuareg, as a, a separatist, and you were framed as whether a, a terrorist or an insurgent, and you would be arrested and maybe sometimes killed without any trial. And a way to test people to see if they were accomplices to insurgents, 
because the insurgents had their rear base in Libya. And it might seem a bit ridiculous, but the test was to know if a young Tuareg male would wear underpants, because this was not the local customs to wear underpants. So if he would wear underpants, that means he has lived abroad, that means in Libya, and he would, target, he would be targeted as such. And this is something you still find today, but within another framework. So if you're in the region of Difar, in the Republic of Niger, and you have burns on your skin, then you are automatically suspected of being a Boko Haram members and manipulating explosives. But of course, you might have burns on your skin simply because the uh, kerosene your oven you used exploded or there are many other reasons, you know. And if you have long nails, that also makes you a suspect because you are suspected of living in the bush as a guerrilla. So you see whether it's the test of the underpants in the 1990s in Mali or today the um, checking of your skin to see if you have any burns or if you have long nails, all these contribute to stigmatization. And I think what it also shows one of the, the key issues in this area of the world, the justice. The justice not working properly. And if you want to cope with the challenge uh, of these various rebellions, whether you name them or frame them as being terrorists or insurgents, whatever the case, you need justice. You need to answer the, the call for justice of the people, not stigmatize people because they wear underpants or they, they have long nails or they have burns on their skin. This is not the way you, you get civilian support. And one thing is clear to me, you cannot win such an asymmetric war if you don't get civilian support. If you don't get it, you will never win. So this means that you should completely transform the kind of political and military response to the current challenge of these various insurgent groups in the, in the Sahel. In the paper, you ask the question whether it's time to rethink the role of the international community and for it to acknowledge its limits before it risks building resentment amongst Sahelian governments and citizens. Why is that? Ah, it's a difficult question. I'm not sure that the uh, European partners of France are aware of the real challenge. They, they buy this narrative on, on global jihadism. You know, the, the, the main problem in the area is the radicalization of Islam, the in, uh, religious indoctr indoctrination, the support by Daesh or by Al-Qaeda which actually needs to be proven. There are some common communiques. There is a war of information, no doubt about it, but we didn't see any transfer of funds or, I mean, massive transfer of funds or weapons from the Middle East or people coming from suburbs in London, Paris, Brussels, or from Iraq or Syria to go and fight in central Mali or around Lake Chad. We have not seen that. So I'm not sure that European partners are aware of the political challenge, because clearly the solution to the crisis in the South is first and foremost political, much more than a military response to this uh, challenge. And I'm not sure the international community is, is much aware of this challenge. They still believe in some kind of formatted response to this challenge, you know, oh, we are going to train the military, we are going to help reinforce the capacity of the states. They've been doing that for decades, for what results? Let me give you an example. In 2012, Samago, the captain who led the mutiny, who toppled the elect president in Mali, and who 
actually officialized the fact that the Malian army would no longer fight in northern Mali, which means that the jihadi groups, first the separatist groups of Tuaregs, and then the jihadi groups took power in Tombuktu or Gao, simply because there was a complete vacuum. Uh, so they just to take their position, nobody would fight them back. And the person who organized this retreat of the Malian army and who was busy fighting for the loot of the prebends of the state in Bamako, Sanogo is his name, Captain Sanogo, he had been trained by the uh, US anti-terrorism. You know, uh, Sanogo had, had received some US training to be better prepared to fight against terrorism. And he was precisely the one who helped terrorists to take their position, to take power in northern Mali, simply because the Malian army retreated. So um, if you think about it, since 2013, the EUTM, the European Union, has been training the Malian army. For what results? The Malian army did take power again in 2020. One of the anti-terrorist units trained by the European Union actually shot and killed some civilians demonstrating about the corrupt elect president who was toppled by the military. And these people were trained by the European Union. So if the international community buys the story that again and again, you can train, you can reinforce the capacity of the state, I think they are doing it wrong. Because again, I'm, I'm not sure the international community is, is aware of the current challenge. Impunity, corruption are the two key words to understand what are the problems currently in, in the states, in the, in the cell, especially in Mali and Burkina Faso, much more than the Islamic Republic of Mauritania or the Republic of Niger. Chad, the Republic of Chad is a different case altogether. The uh, president in charge uh, took power by force in 1990, and he has used uh, the war on terror as a kind of rent to get some support for his regime, military support, financial support. And there was some mission creep of Operation Barkhane, which is uh, the um, French military operation, whose mandate is officially to fight terrorist groups. But a year ago, they bombed rebel groups in northern Chad. Uh, they had nothing to do with jihad or terrorism, but they were the armed opposition against President Deby. Uh, so the president who has been um, in power in Chad since 1990. And you could see the, the mission creep, you know, the international community, its, its commitments, its financial and military commitments is used by local leaders, political leaders, to get some support on, and stay in power. It is a rent for people like President Deby in Chad. Yeah, clearly. That's a fascinating question that you've raised and actually problems for the international community and its response. And actually, to end the interview, in your conclusion for the paper, you ask the question whether it's time to end military cooperation. Why do you ask that question? Because when you train an army which perpetrates extrajudicial killing, which perpetrates massacres, you become responsible also a bit to it. You know, you, you become accomplice to it because you know what's going on. And if you don't know, that means you're not professional in your training. Actually, it's not only the case of cell. There's an issue on military cooperation. How do you assess it? How do you evaluate it? Many times you just number the number of hours for the training and that's it. And you consider that, okay, so many soldiers were trained for so many hours and that's it. It's considered to be a good, a good assessment. Let's judge by the results. Again, 
the person responsible, the captain responsible for the coup in Mali in 2012, had been trying to fight terrorism and actually contributed to help terrorist groups to um, get power in Northern Mali. So uh, it is time for national assemblies, parliamentarians in European countries to really question how this military cooperation is used. Because if you try and equip armies that perpetrate human rights violations, you become accomplice to it. And this is my also my understanding as a French citizen, not only as a French academic or, or researcher, you know, if you have boots on the ground, you have a direct responsibility if you try and equip armies that perpetrate human rights violations, you have a direct responsibility on the conflict, on, on the way the conflict evolves, if, if security does not improve, and if there are some massacres, you become part of it. If you don't have boots on the ground and you just let national armies perpetrate the massacres, your responsibility is indirect. You could have been there, but the French army has been there for eight years, but to no avail. But you're not there, so you are indirectly responsible for what's going on. But then your role is to play the diplomatic card and name on shame. Um, but you don't have a direct responsibility in the deterioration of security or the human rights violations. And maybe it is time for the international com community to think about that. Yes, there is a, a responsibility of the international community in the situation on the ground from the very moment you fund and equip armies that perpetrate human rights violations. Well, that brings us to the end of a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for your time, Marc-Antoine. It's been uh, really, really interesting to hear your insights, and I'm sure our listeners will really enjoy reading your paper. Thank you very much, Yusuf. Thank you. And that brings us to an end of this episode of Africa Aware. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Please do subscribe on the platform that you're listening to us on to ensure you don't miss an episode. And do leave a review, as that will allow others to find this podcast easier. Thanks for listening to Africa Aware. I've been your host, Yusuf Hassan. Until next time. <laughs>